I love it when Joe leads that song. Like, I can go home now. Oh, I did that last week. I'm sorry. (laughs) Guys, I want to tell you I'm so grateful for last week and uh, Reuben taking my spot preaching on an hour and a half notice. And uh, I'm telling you, I I was struggling. But I was so fired up to come in here and kind of waddle my way over to the basket and put in the money. It was so awesome giving to special missions last week. And I want to also tell you, I am so proud of you that on our first pass, $430,000. Wow. I want to give you another hand. That's very encouraging. Now, as was stated earlier, we get to give uh, all the rest of the month and I believe we're going to make it. But I want to tell you, that's that is so encouraging, and I really, really look forward to seeing what God does as we continue to, uh, thank you, as we continue to, uh, to collect our offering so that we can support the churches in Mexico and Central America, as well as the Middle East, and as well as Tucson. And speaking of Tucson, I wanted to uh, mention, um, obviously we're sending money to help with that team, but we also are sending a disciple. And so I'm really excited to announce that Dakota Botello, go and stand on up. Stand on up, brother. Dakota's going to go and be a member of that mission team to go and plant that church that's going to be led by Rob and Pam Skinner, who uh, were the former campus ministers of my wife. Uh, many, many years ago. And so it's really, really encouraging to see how God is, is working uh, through that mission team there. And I'm really excited that Dakota gets to be a part of it. Uh, I also wanted to mention, uh, for those of you, because we are opening up the registration, I also want to let you know that if you would like to go for $200, you can ride on a bus. Okay? You can ride on a bus. The campus ministry... Uh, has a bus that we've chartered uh, with the help of, uh, of some disciples. And so we're really excited about it. But, uh, you know, we have a few more spots open. And if you said, you know what, I want to go. I can do this still. The registration has opened. Well, then if you think that, and I, that's a good thought to have. But I would say $200 is a pretty good way to do it. So anyway, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you'd like to do that, where's Yasmin? Yasmin, right there. See Yasmin, and she will be able to hook you up. So that's very encouraging. Also, I wanted to mention um, uh, Whitney Velez uh, is in from Alaska. Where's Whitney? Stand on up, Whitney. Amen. Whitney was uh, part of the Cal State Long Beach ministry, and she got hired to be an intern in Alaska. And so she's been uh, serving as a campus minister there in Alaska, uh, leading the women. Amen? And so uh, it's super encouraging to have you here. Uh, Definitely am so proud of you and your uh, willingness to go and preach the word in the cold, icy tundra. So, yeah. <laughs> also, I know I got all these things I got to say. They're just on my heart. But I um, today was so encouraging uh, for those of us who had a chance to go out to the North Region. They had their regional service, and at that service, they appointed two evangelists and women's ministry leaders, and one of those was our very own Tommy and Jessica Tang. And so it was very, very encouraging. And uh, Sean and I had the honor of being able to, uh, alongside the Quince, be able to point them as evangelists and women's ministry leader. And i got to tell you, it was just a very emotional time. Very, very exciting. And then finally, I can't, I can't neglect talking about the incredible event that really went on yesterday that was so amazing. And I was so proud uh, to see Dustin and Catherine get married yesterday. Amen? That was just an amazing wedding. 
And I felt really, really proud uh, to be able to see the church, to be able to see all the disciples, to be able to see the, the incredible wedding and just what an incredible example they are and how much they really love each other. It was so obvious in the wedding. And so I'm really grateful. You know, we've got these weddings coming up. All the, actually, we've got another wedding going on today, actually. Um, but there's weddings going on and they're going on. And, and so this, this is a good sign. It's a good time. To be in the singles ministry or the campus ministry. Because the wedding bells are ringing. And the way that kind of works is when, when, when it's kind of like the domino effect when it comes to weddings. People get inspired. It gets in the air. It's in the fever. And so I'm, hopefully you guys are, are excited about that. Amen. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. I've, I've talked too much. Father, I want to thank you, God. It's so amazing to be in the church. So encouraging to be able to really look into your word and to be able to see just how amazing Jesus really is. And we are so grateful, God, that you are willing to send Jesus to die so that we could have an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. That we can have an opportunity to change, to grow, to be different. And God, we really need you. We really desire for you, God, to work in our hearts to really appreciate really what you have done. And uh, we are so thankful that you've allowed us to be part of your church. Thank you, God, that you send your son as a mediator for us. That uh, we don't have to defend ourselves, God, but that Jesus defends us. And that he loves us and he believes in us and he wants to be our mediator. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the title of today's lesson is simply, He Mediates. And maybe I should say it in an exclamation mark. He mediates. We are so, we are so lucky. We should be the most grateful people in the world to know that Jesus is our mediator. That he mediates for us, that he defends us, that he is able to get us in a right relationship with God when we blow it ourselves. You know, the word mediator is mesites. And basically, it's someone who stands between two people and brings them together. A mediator represents both parties. In Judaism, a priest was a mediator between God and men. Because he was a man, he would have to sacrifice for himself because he was sinful. And then he would sacrifice for the people. The priest's purpose was to reconcile God and men. That was God's role for the priest. They were to reconcile God and men. As we look in the Bible, we, we learn about Jesus being a priest. We learn about the priesthood. We learn about Melchizedek. And, and so we're going to do a little bit of studying today. And I'm going to need you to stick with me, because we're going to have to dig into some pretty intensive reading. Okay, so I need you guys to get revved up, open up your Bibles, okay, whatever you got to do, we're going to crank through some scriptures, beginning in Hebrews 7, verse 1. It says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham Gave him a tenth of all the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, 
Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And I know this is pretty complicated, right? So you're just going to have to stick with me. If perfection could have been attained through the, Levit- through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe had ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of the regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect and better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever because of this oath jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office but because jesus lives forever he has a permanent priesthood therefore he is able to save completely those who have come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure, set aside from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who's been made perfect forever. So what's the point? The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by men. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator, is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. Let's skip to chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant has regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lamp stand on the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now, so we won't. Let's skip to 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Now that he has died is a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You know what's awesome? Is that Jesus became this high priest. And he became a mediator for us. And he took our place. And he was willing to be sacrificed. So that we could have an opportunity to be saved. So that our sins could be forgiven. So that we wouldn't have to be enslaved to sins our whole life. Jesus is a mediator. 
He's my mediator. He's your mediator. We should be the most grateful people in the world. We should be the most grateful people in the world. You know, in 9 verse 13, the Bible says, The blood of goats and the bulls and the ashes of the heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You know, the truth of the matter is this. The priest could offer a sacrifice that would only clean them outwardly. But Jesus offered a sacrifice that could cleanse their conscience. That through the Holy Spirit could cleanse their hearts. That their sins could be completely forgiven. Not just covered over. Not just a shell of forgiveness. But total and complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And there's only one mediator between God and man. And that is the man Christ Jesus. And so we should be excited as disciples about that. But you know what? Jesus wants to cleanse us. He wants to cleanse our conscience. You know, when I think about Jesus representing me, and Jesus saying, look, let me, let me mediate for you, it makes me feel secure. It makes me feel confident. I don't have to defend myself in a court of law. I have Jesus stepping in and saying, look, I got this. I'll take care of him. Any other lawyer, you want to come at him? Don't worry, I can, I can handle this. I will defend him. I will mediate for him. That excites me. But you know what? I need that. I desperately, desperately need it. As a 23-year-old disciple, I've had many highs and lows as a Christian. I can tell you that sometimes I'm like Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Man, his word is in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire shut up with my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Sometimes I feel that way. Other times I'm so discouraged. I go, is God even answering my prayers? Is God even listening to what I'm saying? Other times I just become dull and lackluster. And I can go through the motions of my Christian walk. And I can do the things I'm supposed to do because I'm a Christian, because I was baptized into the body of Christ. And so I know that it's the right thing to do. But when you get to that point, it's not a good spot. It's not a good spot. Guys, I can tell you this is where I have been. I have been kind of this dull, lackluster spot in my faith. And I've been fighting. And I've been trying to pull out of it. And I've been trying to get out of it. And I've got to tell you, I desperately need help. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. When you feel weak. When you feel helpless. When you feel like, man, I, I'm having this out-of-body experience. It's like I'm watching someone from the outside. And I'm kind of going, is this really me? What's happening in my spiritual walk with God. Sometimes it's like that commercial, you know, that we used to watch. I've fallen and I can't get up. You know? For you old timers, you know that. I've fallen and I can't get up. And sometimes I feel that way. And it makes me not want to preach. Although that wasn't the case last week. I really wanted to preach. I was crying because I couldn't preach. I was like so bummed. It's one of my favorite services of the year. And I couldn't preach. And I just sat in my car and I cried. It's like, God, I just want to preach. But amen. Reuben stepped up. Did a fantastic job. Amen. Sometimes it makes me want to be alone. It makes me want to cancel meetings. It makes me feel like, why? I have nothing to offer at this meeting anyway. You ever feel that? 
You know, as I uh, had my ministry evaluation this last week, yes, as ministers, we get evaluations. You get your annual review. And as I was sitting down for my annual review, I thought, you know what? I'm, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how this is going to go. And as I, uh, got down, as I got ready for my evaluation, Marco, Bruce, and Robin, and Kevin Maines sat down with Sean and I. Now, when you get that many people in one room, you're either moving on a mission team, you're going to go lead a church, or somebody cares enough for you to do a spiritual intervention. To help you connect with your mediator. To help you connect with Jesus. First of all, I want to say, I'm so grateful for the discipleship. I'm so grateful for people who love me enough to look me in the eyes and to open the scriptures and say, look, you're not in a good spot. You're not in a good spot. And we want to help you. And we want to help you overcome. felt so encouraged. You know, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And as I went into that meeting, I have to tell you, my heart was sick. Because I wasn't feeling and grasping and understanding everything that Jesus wanted to do with my life as my mediator. And how he wanted to defend me and and how he could help me, and how he could get me through this time. And, and as we sat down, you know, I really began to realize Psalm 141, verse 5, man, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It is like oil on my head. I will not refuse it. And I needed it. Proverbs 20, 30, blows and wounds, cleanse away evil. And they purge the inmost being. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It's oil on my head. And oil on your head is a good thing. Or was that? I don't necessarily want that now. (laughs) But I really, really appreciated that people were in my life and wanting to save the things to help me get back on track. Because the truth of the matter is, they just wanted to help me grow spiritually. And they saw that I was stuck. And they saw that I couldn't get going. And they saw that I had fallen and I could not get back up. As we began to talk, here are some of the things we talked about. And I don't know if we'll get back to the lesson. I'm just going to share. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and share. I'm going to let you in on my discipleship time. You guys want in on this? Okay. My wife wants to make sure I'm ready for this. <laughs> like he needs some more money. One of the first things he said is, Steve, you struggle with a lack of contentment. You're always wanting more. You always want the next adventure. Adventure. You're a thrill seeker. But you're not settling on down and doing what you need to do in your own ministry. And he challenged me in this area, and, and got to tell you, I was feeling for a moment defensive, but I began to see what he was talking about. Because he said, you always want to know what's going on with everyone else, and you're not content unless you're in the know. You're not content unless you're on top of what's going on. And you're too busy living in the past instead of doing what you need to do now and being content with what you have now. And I thought, wow, that's convicting. Read Philippians 4.12. I know, this is Paul. He says, I know what it is to be in need. 
And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And I just said, you know what? I just want to be content. I want to be like Paul. Paul knew what it was to be content. He didn't always have to have the next greatest thing. He didn't always have to be going and doing something amazing, although he did a lot of amazing things. He could be content with God alone. There's got to come a point in every one of our Christian lives where God is enough. Where you can be content. If all I have is God, if everything else is breaking loose, if everything is not going the way I want it to go, if I just have God, that's enough. I go, man, I've got to be content. What is wrong? What happens? I was convicted in Psalm 131, verse 1 through 3. It says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is the soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. Here's David, a king. Not just any king, a warrior-like king. The greatest king of all time. And yet he said, this is my desire. This is my heart. This is what I want. I don't want to concern myself with great matters that are too wonderful for me. I just want to still and I want to quiet my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You know, I've got to pursue a quieted spirit. I've got to draw closer to God. You know, you, this imagery of a weaned child with its mother. It's just a peaceful image, isn't it? I was going to get a picture, but I said, I don't, I don't have time for pictures today. I just want to get open. I just want to share. I just want to get real. But he didn't get involved in concerns that had little to do with him or were too wonderful for him. He said, look, I just want you to focus on being content with God, like a weaned child with their mother. Another thing is my pride would keep me from getting help. You know, in my pride, I certainly, you know, have not been as humble as I've needed to be. And uh, I've been confronted on it a few times. You've got to be humble, Steve. You've got to grow in your humility. You've got to pursue humility. You've got to pursue it. It's got to be the passion. It's got to be the object of your desire. Where you become a humble man. Where you want to be taught. Where you want to be trained. Where you want to be molded and shaped and rebuked and corrected and trained. So that you can become the man of God that God wants you to be. He said, no one can tell you anything. Be prideful. And your pride keeps you immature. It makes you ineffective and unproductive. It keeps you from feeling closer to people. It makes you insecure. And ultimately it destroys your faith. And I read Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. And I thought, you know, to be completely humble, you've got to pursue it. Nobody becomes completely humble by chance. Well, I'm completely humble. Really, how'd you do that? Well, it just happened. I don't know. It's crazy. It's a crazy thing. It wasn't like that. It has to be pursued. It's got to be something that is the object of your desire. Humility. I want to ask you, and I'm mostly confessing for me, but how are you doing in your humility? Ask yourself if you're growing. 
if you're not growing spiritually and you're not different than you were six months ago, you're not a humble person. You're not striving to grow and to mature the way God wants you to grow and mature. Ask yourself, are you gentle? Would your kids say you're gentle? I feel very convicted by this. Completely gentle, completely humble. I gotta grow in this. Ephesians four, seventeen and eighteen. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You know, when you hear that scripture and someone says, this scripture is for you, your heart is hardening and your thinking is futile. You've got to go, wow, what has happened? What is going on? What do you see? What do you what are you seeing in me? And you've got to ask, hey, help me. You know, I know that my thinking has been futile. And that I've gotten discouraged. In a lot of ways, I've felt separated from God's plan due to the hardening of my heart. I know God's plan, but my heart was hardened to it. I knew God's universal rule that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. But my heart was prideful. And I wasn't letting people in my life. Of course, I would let them talk. But I'll talk about that more in a minute. I developed an entitled spirit or a lack of gratitude. I deserve this. I've been a Christian long enough. I deserve this. You know, an entitlement spirit is not a good thing. Sometimes we think if I do X, then Y should happen. Now, that might make sense in your algebra class. It doesn't make sense as a disciple. When you do X, Y actually rarely happens. It's actually like an anomaly if it does happen. But when you're entitled, you expect it to happen. Well, I did this. This should work. I did this. I did this. It should work. Everything should work exactly how I said or exactly how I thought. And it doesn't always work. And when you struggle with entitlement, you, you just think things aren't fair. You want things to be fair. You think your life should go how you want it to go. It's never your responsibility. You blame other people. You know, my life should be going exactly how I want it to go. It's the, it must be the teacher's fault. It must be the coach's fault. It must be the kid's fault, which is a lot of pressure for any kid to experience. Somebody must have done something. Difficult times in my life could not possibly be my fault. And a proof of that is not taking responsibility. Like a person on welfare. They could get off of it, but it's just easier to be on it. I'm not saying everyone on welfare is, is this person. But I'm saying some people who are, they just go, you know what? I've served my time. I, I, can, I can take a few months off. I can just collect from the government and just do nothing. When they could do something about it, but they just don't. And it's just easier not to. And it's easier to feel sorry for yourself and point, well, the government this and this and that, and you know, da da da. And you, you just, you can make all these reasons why it's okay. But I find myself not taking responsibility. Not leading my family the way I need to. Not initiating prayer times with my wife. Not, being, not making it a priority for me to get discipled. Not initiating the, the early morning quiet times that I used to just love spending time with the brothers with. Not expecting myself to be in Bible studies with anybody or just when I, I had to really become so immature in my thinking, and I was blinded. I needed other disciples to help me open my eyes to see myself clearly. You know, we need that, don't we, as disciples? Yeah. We need someone in our life who will say, look, 
you don't see yourself clearly. I don't think you want to be this way. I don't think it's your intention. You probably didn't wake up one day and said, this is how I want to be. But somehow, some way, that's where you are. And so we need each other in our lives to be able to say, look, I, can I help you? Can I talk to you? Can we have a talk? Can we open up the Bible and look at God's Word? That's what this time was, and I needed it desperately. You know, it was a definite wake-up call for me. And I needed godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, we all know what the Scripture says. You know, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation, what alarm, what readiness to see justice done, what eagerness to clear yourselves, and all and all the different things that's involved in that. And I go, man, I need someone who would not let me feel sorry for myself with worldly sorrow. I say, look, Steve, you got challenges just like everyone else. Yeah, things didn't happen maybe the way you wanted it to go. Maybe your life isn't going exactly how you want it to go in every area. But wake up. And that's not the spirit of it, but that's, that's what I, that's how I, that's what I need to wake up myself. I got to get tough. I got to go Clint Eastwood on myself. I go, come on, man. Get going. Get going. I got to get myself going. Because I can easily just, ah, just, and I didn't used to be that way, but, I, but that's where I'm at now. And I don't know why all the reasons, but it doesn't matter all the reasons why. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I repent. What matters is that there's godly sorrow. What matters is that God intends for me to be sorrowful. And that I need to have that sorrow. And I need to have that conviction. And I need to be sorrowful as God intends, not as Satan intends. Satan intends we get self-pitying. And you feel sorry for yourself. You go, oh, poor Steve. Things didn't go the way you wanted. Ministry's not going as maybe the way you want it to go. You're not, having, not raising up as many leaders as you want. You're not sending out as many people you want. People you're sending out maybe aren't doing as good as you had hoped they might do. So what do you quit? You give up? Or do you stand up and fight? Or do you engage in the battle and be the man of God that God has told you to be as an evangelist in God's church and to preach the word in season and out of season to teach, rebuke, and correct with great patience and careful instruction and trust that if I do that, that God will help me. Say what pointing Tommy and evangelist today was so convicting, but it was like this is what I needed. God knows. You know, God is awesome. He's like, you big goofball. I know what you need. You need to appoint somebody. Maybe that will remind you what you really signed up for when you said you want to be an evangelist in God's church. And I'm telling you, man, God, I am far from there, I know. But God is stirring up things in my heart again. He's stirring it up. And He's opening my eyes and He's opening my heart. And quite honestly, I was blinded. It wasn't like I was intentionally or purposefully doing these things. But you know when your sin begins to build up, and instead of having the full cleansing that God designed for you, you go back to the old ways and you just settle for a shell. The outward appearance of being spiritual. When you settle for that, your Christianity begins to drag. It begins to be miserable. You know, it was a rough week. I'll just say that. But I will say I'm grateful. And I can't imagine without Jesus what I would do. I can't imagine if I didn't have Jesus to mediate for me, man, what would I do? I'd be like the Old Testament. 
And the best I could do is a shell. And not really have a clear conscience and a pure heart before God. Completely the way God designed it. And I want to encourage you guys. We have Jesus as a mediator of a new covenant. He's our mediator. And he is there to defend us and to fight for us. And to help us in our time of need to lift us up when we fall. And to remind us, hey, look, you're not going to be perfect. But I'll make up the difference. You know, I love DK when he shared his communion. But he did a great job. Really talking about Jesus. And how Jesus can make up that difference for us. You know, as I was doing this lesson, I thought I should just do communion. Let's take communion again. No, let's not. But, but when you look at Jesus and you go, wow, Jesus is awesome. You know, you, you see that Jesus, it's always been God's plan for Jesus to be revealed so that we could have this. So that we could have this relationship, this, this fullness in Christ. It has always been Jesus' desire and so when we feel empty or we feel half-hearted or we feel like we're going through the motions, that's not Jesus' desire for you. He wants you to be fully devoted, fully committed, all of your heart, all in. You know, as you look through uh, Hebrews, you know, Melchizedek was a priest. And Melchizedek was a priest who was the king of Salem. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And, and, and Melchizedek was an awesome guy. And you know, and the scripture goes on in verse 4. He says, think of how awesome he must have been. If, if Abraham said, here, let me tithe to you, Melchizedek. He must have been awesome. He must have been epic. He must have been Incredible! And yet, we see that Melchizedek is really a foreshadowing. It's a predictive story about Jesus. And, and nobody knows for sure, what's up with Melchizedek? What's the real deal on Melchizedek? What's really up with that guy? You know, there's a lot of speculation. But if you really want to study it out, you can go to Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then study Hebrews 5-7 through on your own. But I will say this, Melchizedek was a historical human being whose priestly ministry typified and was predictive of Jesus Christ. And there was five qualifications of a priest. Number one, he had to descend from the Levi, from the Levi's and Aaron. The second thing is they were set aside for priestly service, but could not be a king. The priestly sacrifices were not permanent. Now, this is this is the five qualifications, excuse me, of the Levitical priest. Number four, the Levitical priesthood was hereditary, not based on a right life. And then finally, the, Levit the Levitical priesthood was temporary service from age 25 to 50. But we know that Melchizedek priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood in every single way. But it outlines five specifically in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. Number one, he had a universal priesthood not just a national, meaning the Levitical priesthood could only minister for Israel and only for Jehovah. Melchizedek was for the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so that was a foreshadowing of Jesus, not simply, you know, being a Messiah for Israel, but for all the world. To give every single man, every single woman a chance to have a mediator that they could go to so their sins could be forgiven. What else about Melchizedek? You know, it was a royal priesthood. You know, it was Melchizedek was a king and a lord, as was Jesus. And of course, you know, the Levitical priesthood, they could not be a king. But, but Melchizedek was unique and he was different in that he was a king and a lord. And of course, when we make Jesus lord at baptism, Jesus is our lord, right? He's our king. And so we have that to really think about as we think about Jesus. Melchizedek's priesthood was also of righteousness and peacefulness. 
Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace. The Levitical priesthood did not have to be righteous. It was all about genealogy. They could not bring men to God. They were never meant to. Melchizedek could and foreshadowed Jesus' ability to bring men to God. Through Jesus' perfect life, death, and his resurrection, he allowed us to participate in a righteousness and peace that comes at baptism when our sins are forgiven. And in in, uh, Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 32, 17, The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. When you think about personal righteousness, doesn't it bring peace? Doesn't it bring confidence? Doesn't it bring that the peace that passes all understanding that guards your heart and your mind? Because you've spent that time with God in prayer to go after that peace. But when we're not spiritual, man, the Christian life can be a grind, can't it? It can be difficult. It can be challenging. But Jesus came to provide that righteousness and peace for us. Amen? Melchizedek's priesthood was personal, not hereditary. The Levitical priesthood was entirely hereditary. Consequently, the priests were more concerned about the pedigree or position than their holiness. Personal righteousness was not a factor at all. There was not a single moral or spiritual qualification that a Levitical priest had to meet. Not one. It had nothing to do with character, ability, personality, righteousness, or holiness. The law made you a priest as long as you had the right genealogy. That's it. You see, the right genealogy, you'd be born in the right family, and you're a priest. No matter how reluctant you are, you're the priest. If you could trace your lineage from Aaron, you were expected to serve. And it was an outward compulsion in Judaism. But for Jesus, it was an inner compulsion. It was about the righteousness, the integrity. Do you desire to really please God? Not this outward show of religiosity, but really at the core of your inner being, at your heart, really loving God. Finally, it was eternal, not temporary. Individually, a Levitical priest served from age 25 to 50. Melchizedek had no such time. The Bible says in verse 3, he abides as a priest forever. And the fact that we have no biblical or other record of the beginning or end of Melchizedek's personal priesthood symbolizes the eternity of his priestly order. He is a type of Christ's truly eternal priesthood because he abides forever. And Jesus abides forever as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You go, man, this is, this is a lot of stuff. I know it is. But I'm trying to help you understand. Yeah, it was an outward thing for them, but it doesn't have to be an outward thing for us. Jesus' desire is that at a heart level we follow him wholeheartedly with everything that we are. And in Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25, the Bible says, But Jesus, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You know, it's so awesome to know that God is able to save. And not partially, but completely. He is completely able to save. I know some of us, maybe you come to church for the first time, you're like, wow, this is, uh, this is not the kind of lesson I'm used to hearing. Well, it's not the kind of lesson I'm used to preaching. Okay? So, so I will tell you this, that we got to really open up our hearts and realize Jesus wants you to have complete salvation. You know, for me, I used to always question, am I really saved? Am I not saved? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think I might be. Well, I'm not sure. I was, yes, last week, but I might not be this week because of what I did Saturday night. And I always felt really insecure. That's never been Jesus' desire. But when we're not righteous and we're not living out the life he's called us to live, sometimes we can question it. 
And we've got to constantly go back to Jesus and remember that Jesus is what it's all about. In Hebrews 7, verse 19, the Bible says, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Through Jesus, we draw near to God. Amen? It's a better hope. It's God's plan. It's God's desire. In uh, verse 20, it says, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind, and you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. And I love, I love this. I love this, that he is a permanent priesthood. If you're a disciple, you just got to hang on. As the book of Hebrews was written, it was written to a bunch of old Christians. And they were struggling in their faith. And they were trying, should I go back to Judaism? Should I stay with Christ? I don't know. Should I go back to the outward appearance? Should I just care about the outwardness? Or should I really get down at a heart level? And really look inside? And really find out what does Jesus expect of me? And I want to tell you, when we do that as disciples, it's inspiring to know that Jesus is there. And that he mediates for us. Amen.